We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Away we go, episode 128 of the Al Galdi podcast. It is Monday, August 23rd, 2021, the 10 year anniversary of what is known as the DC earthquake, even though the epicenter of the earthquake was in Virginia. How arrogant of DC to call the earthquake the DC earthquake when it was Virginia's earthquake, but no doubt. D.C. was affected. The Washington Monument was damaged big time. The National Cathedral was damaged big time. I was on my couch watching TV in my one-bedroom condo when the earthquake happened shortly before 2 p.m. 10 years ago. My first thought was, uh, do I have the laundry machine on? Because sometimes when that bad boy was going, you could feel the vibrations. But these vibrations kept going and going and going. And after a while, These vibrations were not the good vibrations that Marky Mark and the Funky Bunch told me about years ago. And as the vibrations went on, I said to myself, uh, I would like for this to stop. And eventually the vibrations did stop. And here we are now, 10 years later, commemorating the 10 year anniversary of a magnitude 5.8 earthquake. People in California must think that we're such wusses. Anyway, hello and welcome to another installment of the Al Galdi podcast, another work week is upon us. The dual birthday party did go down. Oh, did it go down on Saturday. The dual birthday party in the Goldie household for my son, who actually today turns four, and my daughter, who on Friday turned one. Many of you asked me if I dressed up for the party. Uh, The answer is yes. Uh, I dressed up modestly. Uh, My wife, to my surprise, ordered me a Spider-Man shirt, so I wore that for the party. I told you on Saturday's show, episode 127, that while the theme of the party was superheroes, my son's most favorite thing actually is landscaping stuff. You know, lawnmowers, leaf blowers, trimmers, etc. He is fascinated by those things. Uh, Those things are to him what position flex is to Ron Rivera. Position flex. Yes, Ron, position flex. Well, sure enough, he, talking about my son, not Ron Rivera, uh, got a toy leaf blower and a toy trimmer. And that's it. That's all he does now is play with those two things. I mean, we probably won't see him again 
until 2025 when uh, <laughs> Dustin Hopkins will still be Washington's kicker. But anyway, I digress. Big show for you when it comes to the Washington football team. A lot to discuss of Ron Rivera's day after the game Zoom press conference on Saturday. We have an update on Washington's quarterback situation. Ron was given a chance to declare Ryan Fitzpatrick as Washington's starting quarterback for week one against the Los Angeles Chargers at FedEx Field, but Ron did not declare Fitzpatrick as Washington's starting quarterback for week one. We'll talk about that and do plenty more on Fitzpatrick's performance in the 17-13 preseason win over the Cincinnati Bengals at FedEx Field on Friday night. We'll talk Taylor Heineke. We'll talk Curtis Samuel. Is he going to finally play for Washington when it concludes its preseason this Saturday evening against the Baltimore Ravens at FedEx Field? Ron, by the way, has revealed the plan for the preparation for the Ravens game. If you thought that this was just going to be some throwaway game, you'd be wrong. Also on the way, lots more on Jarrett Patterson. I now believe that he's making Washington's season opening 53-man roster. Has Ron perhaps given us hints that Patterson is making Washington's season opening 53-man roster. We'll talk Antonio Gibson. We'll talk Jamin Davis and more. I have a national segment for you. They lost 2-3 or three at the National League Central leading Milwaukee Brewers over the weekend. But the biggest takeaway, if you're a Nats fan, is the continued emergence of some of these young Nats, including Lane Thomas. Lane Thomas killed it for the Nats over the weekend. The Nats got Lane Thomas right before the MLB trade deadline on July 30th from the St. Louis Cardinals for John Lester. Are we seeing, right before our eyes, the latest example of Mike Rizzo being a ninja executive when it comes to trades? Yes, that is the sound of the ninja strike. And I have a substantial, and I believe needed, segment on the Orioles. They now have lost 18 consecutive games. The O's were swept by the National League East leading Atlanta Braves at Oriole Park at Camden Yards over the weekend. But all of this crying and screaming about the losing streak and the state of the Orioles rebuild and the crime that is the way that the O's are running their baseball operations need to stop. Here's the truth. The Orioles rebuild is working. Yes, the Orioles rebuild is working. I'll explain how, and you'll hear a great explanation from O's Executive Vice President and General Manager, Mike Elias. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi Podcast at Yahoo.com. I owe you another thank you. This podcast, as of late Sunday night, was in the top 30 in the country on Apple Podcasts in the U.S. football category. 10 spots ahead of the Adam Schefter podcast. We're sticking it to Schefter. I love it. But a sincere thank you to you for downloading, subscribing, rating, and reviewing. Those five-star ratings and those written reviews saying that you like the podcast really help out a lot. I ask you guys to do those things, so I'd like to tell you when those things pay off. So thank you. And before we move any further, I want to say something else. And I actually tweeted this on Sunday night, but I will say this now on the podcast. Uh, I don't normally care at all about the NFL Top 100 list that comes out on NFL Network every summer, but this year's list, not having Terry McLaurin on it, but having Cole Beasley at number 96 and Corey Davis at number 91 is a joke, okay? If you're going to have as among the receivers on the list, Cole Beasley and Corey Davis, 
then you for darn sure better have Terry McLaurin. The fact that McLaurin is not on this NFL top 100 list is embarrassing, okay? That totally discredits the list, which is voted on by players. And this is an example of how players don't get this stuff right. Most players only know those who the players play against. You watch film of opponents, you don't watch tape of every player in the league. And for the most part, you ain't sitting down and doing the comparative analysis of, well, is this guy better than that guy? Well, if this guy is better than that guy, then what about this other guy? Players don't go through that exercise. Are you kidding me? Most players, when they vote on stuff like this, they go off reputation and recommendation. And when it comes to those players who the players have watched on film, yes, that definitely helps. But otherwise, players wing it. I mean, Chris Cooley once told me, about what player voting for the Pro Bowl was really like when he played. The voting was absurd. Guys put zero thought into it, could not have cared less about it. This is why I almost never care about the NFL Top 100. But McLaurin not making it off back-to-back great seasons, despite a quarterback carousel, the likes of which few receivers ever have to deal with, is just wrong, especially when Cole Beasley is number 96 and Corey Davis is number 91. All right, there you go. I feel better now. Hey, speaking of feeling better, uh, who doesn't want to feel better about his or her lawn? I'm very proud to introduce you to a new sponsor of the Al Galdi podcast, Weedman. Weedman cares for your lawn, so you don't have to. Weedman provides what your lawn needs to look great. Fertilization, weed control, aeration, and seeding as well as a variety of other services. I tell you, if my son ever watches Weed Man at work, he'll never stop watching. Uh, but if you don't have the time or the knowledge to make your lawn look great, no worries. Let Weed Man take care of your lawn. Here's a key aspect of Weed Man. It is a national network of locally owned franchises. So you'll receive the personal service that you deserve. Weedman answers your phone calls and emails promptly. Weedman does what it says it's going to do. All of that sounds simple, right? And it is simple, but it's not nearly as common as it should be. When you call Weedman, you're speaking to someone in an office in your area, not somewhere in the Midwest. You're not waiting for 30 minutes to speak to someone. Weedman actually has real answers that have meaning in your area. If you have that little area on your lawn that needs attention, Weedman will take care of that area. You're not dealing with a huge faceless corporation that treats you like a number. Weedman uses superior products that really improve your soil, and Weedman only treats what needs to be treated. If you're not satisfied with your lawn or with who's treating your lawn, especially if you're currently with the evil empire, make the switch to Weedman. Weedman's products are of the highest quality. Weedman does not cut corners. A beautiful spring lawn starts in the fall, and so Weedman is offering something special to listeners of the Al Galdi podcast. A fall tune-up at a great price. An aeration and two fall fertilization services for just $209. That price is a steal, and the price applies to lawns of up to 6,000 square feet. So here's what you do. Call 571-340-3400. When you call, make sure that you mention the Al Galdi podcast so you get the special deal. Again, an aeration and two fall fertilization services for just $209. That phone number again, 571-340-340. 3400 and make sure that you mention the Al Galdi podcast 
so you get the special deal. I want you to get that deal. You can also Google Weedman and make a web request. Just make sure that you mention the Al Galdi podcast. Weedman, a great lawn at a great price with great personal service. All right, two preseason games down, one to go for the Washington football team. Third and final preseason game is this Saturday evening against the Baltimore Ravens at FedEx Field at 6. The Ravens, by the way, will come into this game with a 19-game preseason winning streak. That is tied for the longest preseason winning streak in NFL history. I don't think that the streak means anything There probably are people who say that the streak means something because the Ravens have been a really good organization for a while. But the truth is the streak is more flukish than anything, a 19-game preseason winning streak. But that is absurd, a 19-game preseason winning streak. The Ravens last lost a preseason game in September 2015. I mean, think about everything that has happened with the Washington football team since September 2015. That's the last time the Ravens lost a preseason game. So the Washington football team on Saturday evening with a chance to end the Ravens preseason winning streak. Uh, Washington does not have a 19-game preseason winning streak, at least not yet, but Washington is 1-1 one one this preseason. 22-13 loss at the New England Patriots on August 12th, and then the 17-13 win over the Cincinnati Bengals at FedEx Field this past Friday night. We on Saturday had a Ron Rivera day after the game Zoom press conference. It lasted for around 20 minutes and he talked quite a bit about Washington's quarterback situation. Ron on Saturday was asked the following question. Are you at this point able to say that Ryan Fitzpatrick is Washington's starting quarterback for week one against the Los Angeles Chargers at FedEx Field? And I want to play for you the exchange in its entirety. We'll start with the question, which came from Washington football team insider Nikki Javala of the Washington Post. Hi, Ron. Um, at this point, are, are you able to say that Ryan Fitzpatrick is your starter for week one? Um, yeah, I can. Um, will you? Or no. are, <laughs> Okay. I mean, there's not, I mean, you know, we don't play for 21 days. Uh, I mean, okay. you know, so whenever, you know, it's time to say it, I'll say it. Whenever we got to put out the first um depth chart you know you guys will see um but right now that's not the important thing the important thing is we continue to work and prepare and get ready and everybody competes um whether it's 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 you know fait accompli or not i I just think you know we we get caught up right now in something that's not as important as practicing and developing and learning and doing things the right way so that was interesting ron would not declare that Ryan Fitzpatrick is Washington's starting quarterback for week one against the Chargers at FedEx Field. Now, I don't take that as Ron not being sure whether Fitzpatrick will be Washington's starting quarterback for week one against the Chargers at FedEx Field. I take that more as Ron just doesn't want to say that Fitzpatrick will be Washington's starting quarterback for week one against the Chargers at FedEx Field. This idea of competition is very important to Ron, even though we do not have competition at every position. See kicker. Uh, Ron on Saturday then got asked this, what would he like to see from Taylor Heineke and Kyle Allen over the remaining time until the regular season? Just continued growth. I think those two guys have done a nice job when they've gotten opportunities. I mean, you go back and you look at some of the things that, that, that Taylor did in the first two games and you watch what Kyle did in the last one. 
and you see that they're developing and growing. They're still young football players. There's still a lot of football left for those guys to play. The nice thing about Fitz is he's such a veteran guy. Things come so natural, so easy, uh, you know, and, and, and when you watch uh, the comparison in my mind between the three of them, uh, you do see the savvy veteran and fits show. It's it's just, you know, his experience that stands out. And, and you know, what I've said is we're looking for a guy that can manage the game, make plays when he has to, get players to, to, to grow and develop, and, and we're getting that right now. So I'm, I'm, I'm excited about what we can potentially be, you know, and, and as we go through this, like I said, with about 21 more days left to go, um, we'll just keep working. All right, so the question was about Taylor Heineke and Kyle Allen, but Ron's answer was mostly about Ryan Fitzpatrick, right? I mean, that's that classic politician thing of, you can ask me your question, but I can give you my answer. And you heard Ron in that answer give Fitzpatrick a pretty nice endorsement. Ryan Fitzpatrick is going to be Washington's starting quarterback for week one against the Chargers at FedEx Field. What I want, all I have ever wanted with this situation, is for Ron to be open to Taylor Heineke. And I think that Ron is open to Heineke. I am excited to see Fitzpatrick as Washington's starting quarterback in the regular season. But, you know, Fitzpatrick is a high-variance guy. His good is great, but his bad is awful. And given the high-variance nature of Fitzpatrick, I would not be surprised if Heineke at some point this season is Washington starting quarterback. If the bad from Fitzpatrick is clustered together, so you know it's not spread out over the 17 games, but say you have a 3-4 game stretch in which Fitzpatrick is really not good, I do think that that could lead to Taylor Heineke becoming Washington's QB1 this season. Heineke has looked pretty good in each of Washington's first two preseason games. He hasn't been perfect. You know, that fumble that he had against the Bengals was really bad, but he is decisive. He knows Washington's offense, and his mobility is a major weapon. Heineke is really good at extending plays and generating off-schedule plays, but Fitzpatrick is too. So with Fitzpatrick, he was mixed against the Bengals at FedEx Field on Friday night. Played for four offensive drives and for the entire first quarter, and he was mixed. I mean, I think that's the way you frame it. Uh, Ron Rivera, in fact, during his postgame press conference on Friday night, said that Fitzpatrick, quote, was a little fired up. He overshot a couple throws that he's been making, end quote. Fitzpatrick went 7-13 for 96 yards, no touchdowns and no interceptions, took one sack. He seemed to be especially off on throws to Adam Humphreys, which was odd because the two played together on the Tampa Bay Buccaneers for two seasons, 2017 and 2018, and those two seasons just happen to be Adam Humphrey's two best NFL seasons so far in his career. This was Ron on Saturday on what he saw on those Fitzpatrick misfires to Humphreys on Friday night. Uh, when you watch the tape and you see those things, uh, more than anything, it's a little bit more uh, developing that field between himself and the receivers. He is anticipating something different from the receiver, and the receiver did, did something opposite. Okay. Um, so that just comes to working and refining and getting a good feel for it. Uh, I, I, I love the decision. Unfortunately, uh, he threw it too far out in front of uh, uh, Logan twice, one time for the first down, the other time for a touchdown. He had, um, he had Adam. I love the decision. One time he just overthrew Adam through the middle. Uh, he led down Miami just a little bit too much. Um, he had Adam Humphrey. He thought Adam was going to was going to cross face, and, and Adam felt because the guy squared him up, he had to go and pivot back out. So, again, that's just getting a little bit more feel and understanding of one another. Um, 
you know, there's a lot of natural things that happen. Uh, you know, if there's anything that I would, I would say about Ryan, that's, you know, that I would ever wonder about is in practice every now and then he will try and force the ball. And that's, you know, I think that's, you know, just a guy that's very confident in his ability to, to throw that ball through that window. Yeah, I thought that what happened on Washington's first offensive drive against the Bengals on Friday night perfectly captured Ryan Fitzpatrick's game. This was the first drive of the game, resulted in a first quarter punt. First snap of the drive, great play. Ryan Fitzpatrick, a first and 10, 28-yard shotgun play action completion to a wide open Logan Thomas. But the fourth snap of the drive, Fitzpatrick threw too far in front of an open Logan Thomas on a third and six shotgun incompletion. But with that 28-yard completion to Logan, consider the following now with Fitzpatrick. He, over two preseason games, has gone 12-21 for 154 yards, no touchdowns, and no interceptions. Now, 12-21 of isn't great. 154 yards on 21 pass attempts isn't great. But 154 yards on 12 completions is great. That works out to a yards per completion of 12.83. Understand that the number one yards per completion in the NFL last regular season was Deshaun Watson's 12.63. So Fitzpatrick, so far this preseason, has a yards per completion of 12.83. That would have led the NFL last regular season. Now, yes, this is based on a small sample size. I mean, Fitzpatrick has played on just six offensive drives this preseason. But even with the lack of actual scoring by Washington this preseason, we are seeing signs of the offense being more dynamic. 12.83 yards per completion for Fitzpatrick is an excellent number. More from Ron on Saturday. It is about good work. And and like I said, the the thing that that was kind of pleasing and yet still disappointing was, you know, Fitzy made great decisions. He just delivered a ball that was a little bit too high uh, and away as far as Logan was concerned. And I think the one he threw to Adam was a little bit outside, you know, so he had opportunities to put points on the board for us. He made good decisions. Unfortunately, the execution part, the, the, the ball was just, you know, just a little bit out of reach. Um, but again, you know, it was a good play call, uh, good execution up to the point where we just didn't convert as far as the, the throw and catch. But again, we made good decisions. We moved the ball. Uh, it's the second week in a row. I think that we, we, we had a, uh, we dominated the time of possession, yardage, um, stuff like that. So I, I think our, our guys are getting it. They are putting it together. But we'll see what happens. Yes, we will. Now, what makes Fitzpatrick's 12.83 yards per completion over two preseason games even more impressive is that that yards per completion has come despite Curtis Samuel not having played for Washington yet. Uh, He has been brought along very slowly of dealing with that groin injury. It wasn't until two Sundays ago, August 15th, that Washington activated Samuel from the active physically unable to perform list. Washington has one game left this preseason. Might we see Samuel play against the Ravens at FedEx Field this Saturday evening? This was Ron this past Saturday. Um, we'll see. I'll continue. You know, we'll continue to watch him, see how he's de- uh, developing, going through things. Um, you know, the nice thing is we still have a little over like 21 days before we play our first game. 
Now, Ron has said that he isn't worried about the Curtis Samuel situation. The implication has been that Samuel could be playing if he really had to. But just the one preseason game left. Is Ron at all concerned about Samuel not having played in a game for Washington, given that Washington has a new starting quarterback in Ryan Fitzpatrick? Well, that's the only thing you're concerned with is getting them to work together. Uh, other than that, you know, we have, uh, you know, we have um, some other guys that we feel pretty good about, too. Okay, there you go. Don Ron still doesn't sound very concerned. Hopefully, he's proven right on that. And with this issue of Washington not scoring much so far this preseason, does scoring matter in the NFL preseason? Uh, not really. Not to me, anyway. But you'd rather score a lot of points than not score a lot of points. And the Washington football team so far this preseason has not scored many points. Washington has totaled just 30 points over two preseason games, including just 13 first half points. Rod Rivera on Saturday on Washington not having done much scoring so far this preseason with just the one preseason game left. Well, I think it's important you go in feeling good about your offense, their ability to move the ball, do some consistent things. Um, I think that's what's important more so than anything else. So um, do I feel pretty good about us? Yes, I do. Would I have liked to see us score touchdowns? Yes, I would have liked to have seen that. Um, but I'm not going to sweat it right now. I like exactly what we're doing. I like how we're moving the ball. And it's just a matter of us continuing to work and keep improving at what we're doing. And so when it comes to Washington's preseason finale against the Ravens at FedEx Field on Saturday evening, it does appear as if Washington starters will play and perhaps play for a while. Take a listen to this, Ron, on Saturday on how he's approaching Washington's preseason finale. Um, we're going to approach this as a mock regular season week. We will we will put together 100% game plan. Um, we will introduce it to the players on, um, let's see, so on Tuesday. So Tuesday will technically be what our normal Wednesday will be. Wednesday will be our normal Thursday. Thursday will be our normal Friday as far as game, pl- uh, game plan prep. I want to see how we handle that as we go through these things. Um, I want to see how everybody seems to um, adjust and adapt. Uh, we, we'll pay attention how these guys retain, how they adjust, um, and just how they handle the whole week. Uh, that, that's that's going to be a real good indicator as to as to our readiness or in terms of getting ready for the regular season. So we'll approach that, and uh, you know everybody will get you know they'll they'll get their uh, game plans just like we would a normal week. So we're going to approach it that way, and you know again we're just going to try and see how guys handle the whole week of preparation. Yeah, so Ron says that this week will be a mock regular season week, 100% game planning. That has not been the case for each of Washington's first two games this preseason. That will be the case for the preseason finale. I wondered whether Washington in this new three-game preseason would treat this year's preseason game number three like the traditional preseason game number four, which was almost always a throwaway game, or the traditional preseason game number three, which was known as the dress rehearsal for years. Well, it appears as if Saturday evening against the Ravens at FedEx Field will be a dress rehearsal for the Washington football team. No way do you do 100% game planning and not play your starters. You don't 100% game plan just to play Steven Montez. Uh, Now, when it comes to selling your home, you need a great game plan. And ain't nobody better to develop that game plan. And there ain't nobody better to sell your home than John Grandland of Real Broker. If you need to sell your home and aren't sure to whom to turn, if you've been trying to sell your home and you're not satisfied 
with how things are going, if you're even just thinking about selling your home, contact my guy, John Grandland, aka John G. And understand, whereas Ron Rivera has position flex as his phrase that pays, John Grandland has commission flex. Position flex. Yes, Ron, you have position flex. John G has commission flex. What is commission flex? It's very simple. Flexible commission rates. Not every house requires the same amount of work or money spent marketing. So why should you pay the same fees? That doesn't make sense. That has never made sense. If your house is going to sell in six minutes, you shouldn't have to pay 6%. And so John Grandlin is changing the game. He will put a marketing plan together for you that will maximize your home's value and help you keep more of your hard-earned equity in your pocket. You see, John Grandlin has a menu of commission packages from which you can choose, including selling your home for free. Yeah, zero commission. Some conditions do apply. But interviewing John Grandlin is an absolute no-brainer. He can come by your house, give you a step-by-step plan on what to do to get top dollar, and maybe even more importantly, what not to do so you don't spend needlessly. And understand, there's never any obligation to list or sell. Do yourself a favor and call John Grandlin. This is a phone call that literally could save and or make you tens of thousands of dollars. Call John G. now, 703 703- 537-6747. When you talk to John, make sure you tell him that Al Galdi sent you and make sure that you ask him about what you keep hearing about on the Al Galdi podcast, the commission flex. That's 703-537-6747 or visit johngsellsforfree.com. That's johngsellsforfree.com. John Grandlin, nobody will do a better job of selling your home. And remember, He is the originator of Commission Flex. Position Flex. Yes, Ron. Just like Position Flex. All right. So the star of Washington's 17-13 preseason win over the Cincinnati Bengals at FedEx Field on Friday night, of course, was Jarrett Patterson. That was the Jarrett Patterson game. Patterson, over two preseason games, has been exactly what I thought, and I'm guessing what many of you thought he would be, a preseason star for the Washington football team. Uh, What that means for the regular season, who knows, but he has been terrific so far this preseason. Patterson against the Bengals, 16 carries for 71 yards and a touchdown, 4.44 yards per carry. He had three receptions for 25 yards on three targets, and he had a 37-yard kickoff return in the third quarter. I said this on the special Saturday installment of the podcast, episode 127. I do believe that Patterson now is making Washington's season opening 53-man roster. Him making the team may have already been the case prior to this game against the Bengals, but I believe that this now is certifiably the case. Ron Rivera at his day after the game Zoom press conference on Saturday on what he needs to see from Patterson moving forward to make Washington's season opening 53-man roster. Well, you want to see you want to see that he can do it again. You know, uh, we're going to come up against a very good Baltimore team. He's going to be in, a, in, in some some tough situations going into this game in terms of who who we're going to you know put him up against and just see how he handles it. I mean, he's he's been he's been solid so far. Uh, you know, this will be a good week. Like I said, this week will be about game prep, uh, and then we'll see how he, how he takes it and handles it uh, going into uh, into Saturday's game. 
Yeah, my guess is he takes it and handles it just fine. Remember what Ron said during his postgame press conference on Friday night about Patterson. Uh, Ron, during his postgame presser, was asked whether Patterson's work over two preseason games had changed how Ron viewed Patterson's potential role on Washington. Here was Ron's answer. No, no, we feel very comfortable with the role we have for him, um, and we'll see how it goes. Okay, so Ron said, quote, we feel very comfortable with the role we have for him, and we'll see how it goes, end quote. Now, you can take that several ways, but one of the ways is that Ron already has a role for Patterson on Washington for the 2021 regular season, i.e. Patterson already was making Washington's season opening 53-man roster. What's cool about the Patterson story is that other Washington players seemingly have taken a liking to Patterson. He, as many of you listening know, played high school football with Chase Young. Uh, They were both at St. Vincent Pilate High School at Laurel, Maryland at one point. Ron on Saturday on Washington players liking Jared Patterson. Oh, yeah, most certainly. Um, You know, it was great because the other day he... um, he uh, he got up and had to do the rookie song too. Um, he uh, what was that he sung? Ain't no mountain high enough. <laughs> Ain't no valley low. Yeah, I believe he sung that. Um, and and he you know it's interesting because he gets it. He does. He, he he doesn't say much. He works hard. Um, he stays after. He does the extra things. He asks guys for opinions and advice. I mean you know he's approaching it the way I think that his teammates appreciate. They know he's an undrafted rookie free agent. Um, he's taken the ball and every opportunity he's had, he just works hard at it and they appreciate that. And they, and so you, when, when you win your teammates over, um, it, it, we notice as coaches, we notice that, you know, it, it's one of those things that when, when, when you're starting quarterback, um, you're starting defensive line, you know, they start recognizing players and you see them working with them, talking to them, you know, there's something there. And so we as coaches pay attention to that because if a guy is, it's like watching the way Sam Cosme and Brandon Sherp have have bonded, you know, you see that communications there, you see that, you know, extra little something after the play and you can see like Brandon telling, you know, cause, Hey, we come in and I'll try to work over the top and get that turn before I leave, you know? So those things tell you that these guys fit, these guys can be part of what you're trying to do. And we've seen that with Jared an awful lot, not just with guys like Diami and not just with, with, with guys like Chase, but some of the offensive linemen will turn around and tell them, you know, hey, you know, if you see me start turning, work off of me, off of my hip and cut inside. You know, those are the things that 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 mean something. And, and, and we will continue to watch that because um, when players react to other players, it tells you something about them. So Patterson, of course, is an undrafted rookie running back at a Buffalo. It does seem that a good number of undrafted rookies who make NFL teams are running backs. Uh, think Gus Edwards of the Baltimore Ravens. If you go back to just recent NFL history, Priest Holmes was an undrafted free agent. Arian Foster was an undrafted free agent. If you're just talking Washington, Fat Rob Kelly was an undrafted free agent. Jake Rudin loved himself some Rob Kelly. I love Rob Kelly. Uh. Yes, Jay, we know. Jay loved Fat Rob Kelly. Oh, man. I love Rob Kelly. Uh. Yes, Jay. Thank you. Uh, Anyway, Ron on Saturday on a good number of undrafted rookies who make NFL teams seemingly being running backs. Um, 
Yeah. You know, there used to be a time where you used to say there's so many of them that, that you're going to miss on one or two of them. Um, but I think what's happened too is I think that position has been so undervalued uh, in the last recent last few years, last recent few drafts that um, I don't think we spend enough time really studying them like we should. Um, I was, you know, we were very fortunate that one of our scouts, our Northeast scout, uh, Peter Piccarelli, absolutely loved the kid. And he hammered Marty and Martin on him. Um, we liked him, but just listening to our scouts just really kind of, you know, just let us know, hey, this guy, we got you, then you really put the tape on, you really truly look at the kid, and all of a sudden you think there's something there. I mean, we had a draftable grade on him. And what happened was some of our other needs were, were, were standing out a little bit more. Um, and I will be honest, too, uh, Chase called and because uh, they know each other. They grew up. They work out together. And he said, hey, how's my guy doing? And I said, Chase, we got him on the board. We like him. Okay, I tell you, he wants to be here, you know. And uh, I do, I listen to the players. We listen to the players. You know, they know. And so uh, it was one of those things we kept a real good eye on him. And, but I really do think what's happened is that position is very undervalued right now uh, because everybody's willingness to want to throw the ball 35, 45, 50 times a game and only run it 10 to 20. Uh, you know, so I think the game's changing a little bit, that the value of the running back isn't there like it used to be. Um, you know, you don't see a lot of high-priced, high-valued wide uh, running backs unless they have some potential in terms of the passing game. Um, so that's, I think, something that's uh, kind of slipping right now. Yeah, Ron, of course, is right about the running back position having been devalued. I mean, you could argue that no position in sports has been devalued more over the last 15 years than running back in football. And I do wonder sometimes if the pendulum has swung so far in the direction of not valuing running backs to where you now can find value in valuing running backs, at least a little bit, you know, that everyone is zigging. And so the zag now is to actually value running backs a bit. Although you have to look at it like this, Washington finding Jared Patterson as an undrafted free agent, that's an example of why you don't value running backs all that highly. Washington didn't draft Jared Patterson and yet now may have found itself a real diamond in the rough. I mean, Washington had three seventh round picks in the 2021 NFL draft and still didn't take Jared Patterson. So this Jared Patterson situation, if it in fact results in him becoming a productive regular season running back, it's an example of why you don't spend big money or high draft picks on running backs because you can find good ones later in drafts and even as undrafted free agents. By the way, to the point of Washington not drafting Patterson, Ron on Saturday was asked what the draft grade that Washington had on Patterson was. Here was Ron's response. It was a good grade. It was a good grade. It was good enough to be drafted, that's for sure. And yet Washington did not draft Jarrett Patterson, even again with having three seventh round picks. But that may well have been a function of Washington knowing that Jarrett Patterson was not going to be drafted. While we're talking draft status, how much does where a guy was drafted impact Ron's decision making when it comes to putting together a season opening 53 man roster? Here was Ron on Saturday on that question. Um, maybe the only time it's ever important is the first year. You know, um, after that, 
you start looking at the guys that are going to help you right now. Um, you know, you, you're not, you really don't want to cut a guy that you drafted right away. Um, but you want to play the guys that give you the best opportunity to win. That I think is important. Um, and then sometimes there's a certain point every now and then where you just have to admit a mistake too and, and, and move on. Now, Ron on Saturday also had some good stuff to say about Antonio Gibson. We'll get to that momentarily. Gibson, of course, offers great dual threat promise, just like one of the great supporters of this podcast, Dr. George Verghese. He can impact you in a positive way in a variety of ways. He is the medical director for the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland. He is a board-certified dermatologist and Mohs surgeon. The Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland focuses on medical dermatology, so if you have an issue with your skin, you certainly want to be in contact with Dr. Verghese and the Institute. But Dr. Verghese and the Institute also focus on skin cancer diagnosis and comprehensive care, including something very special and cutting-edge, superficial radiation therapy, or SRT. SRT is an alternative to surgical procedures for basal cell and squamous cell skin cancers. SRT really is revolutionary. It's a non-surgical skin cancer treatment that's safe and effective. You see, having skin cancer doesn't mean having to have surgery and the downtime and side effects that go with surgery. You have options. Understand that a non-surgical option in SRT is available, and Dr. George Verghese in the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland offer SRT, unlike many other dermatology practices in the area, and SRT is covered by most insurances. If you are dealing with skin cancer, if someone you know is dealing with skin cancer, we certainly hope that you are doing well. We certainly hope that that someone you know is doing well. But give Dr. Verghese and the Institute a call to see what can be done for you. The phone number is 301-396-3401. Make sure you tell them that Al Galdi sent you. That phone number again, 301-396-3401, or visit midatlanticskin.com. That's midatlanticskin.com. Dr. George Verghese in the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery, Institute of Maryland, nationally recognized for treating skin cancer, across the mid-Atlantic region. So we, last segment, talked about Ryan Fitzpatrick having had a mixed game against the Bengals at FedEx Field on Friday night. Also having a mixed game was Antonio Gibson. He had seven carries for 28 yards. The drive that epitomized his night was Washington's second offensive drive. Started at the Bengals' 45, but resulted in a first-quarter turnover on downs. There on this drive regarding Gibson was some good and some not-so-good. First snap of the drive, Gibson, a first and 10, nine-yard offset eye handoff run. That was good. Second snap of the drive, Gibson, a second and one under center handoff run for no gain. Not good. Third snap of the drive, Gibson, a third and one four-yard under center handoff run on which he did a really nice job of bouncing to his right. That was good. But seventh snap of the drive, Gibson stuffed on a fourth and one shotgun handoff run for no gain. Ron Rivera, at his day after the game Zoom press conference on Saturday, on what went wrong on the fourth and one Gibson run for no gain. Uh, that was disappointing to me. I, I, I felt we could have hit that a little harder. Um, there was a little bit of hesitation. I, I, I thought, from my, uh, my perspective of watching it, um, I thought we could have stayed on the, on the double team a little bit longer and then worked up a little bit. I think we might have come off that a little bit soon. 
sooner than we need it to. Um, and again, I think a little bit of hesitation on uh, on AGs uh, on Antonio um, that might have given that guy that little extra chance to get in there and make the play. Um, but I, I think it's the right call because we went back to it a little bit later in the game and uh, converted with it. I like how Ron at the beginning of that cut says, I felt we could have hit that a little harder. He says we. He means Antonio Gibson. It's not a we thing. It's a Gibson thing. Ron wanted Gibson to hit the hole harder, and Gibson did not. Ron was testing Antonio Gibson on Friday night. There's a reason that Antonio Gibson was on the field and getting the carries in those short yardage instances during Washington's second offensive drive. Ron wanted to see how Gibson did in a short yardage predicament. That was Peyton Barber's role for Washington last season. May well be Barber's role for this coming season, although obviously Barber's status in terms of making the season opening 53-man roster is at least somewhat up in the air with his rise of Jared Patterson. But you wonder if Ron seeing the mixed results for Gibson on short yardage runs on Friday night perhaps further compels Ron to keep Barber on the season opening 53-man roster. Of course, it's possible you could practice squad Peyton Barber. You can now put veterans on your practice squad. I don't think it's entirely impossible that Peyton Barber clears waivers, although you got to keep this in mind with Peyton Barber. A, he was very efficient on short yardage runs last season. B, he's very durable. C, he like never fumbles. So I know it's fashionable to bash Peyton Barber, but he actually brings a good bit to the table. But Ron mentioned hesitation from Antonio Gibson. How does Ron view that hesitation from Gibson? I think it's not quite understanding how to really press that play. In other words, you know, just take the ball, get downhill as quickly as you can, and just believe that the creature is going to be there. Sometimes that hesitation is to set up a block or set up the crease, but, you know, when it's third and short, to me, you, 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 you just got to go get it. You've got to go downhill and pick that up. Yeah, and Antonio Gibson is still learning the running back position. We got to remember that. Gibson last season as a rookie who was learning the running back position and who, remember, didn't have a normal NFL offseason or preseason, still rushed for 795 yards and 11 touchdowns on 4.68 yards per carry. This is a big part of why there is so much optimism regarding Antonio Gibson for the upcoming season. If he could put up the numbers he put up last season while still learning the running back position and not having had a normal NFL offseason or preseason, what might he look like in year two with more experience at running back and having had a normal NFL offseason and a preseason? Some good stuff from Ron Rivera on Saturday on a trio of Washington rookies. We'll get to that after this. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. 
Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. All right, a few more items from Rod Rivera's day after the game Zoom press conference on Saturday off the Washington football team's 17-13 preseason win over the Cincinnati Bengals at FedEx Field on Friday night. By the way, no Dustin Hopkins questions for Ron on Saturday. He spoke for nearly 20 minutes, not a single question regarding D-Hop. Uh, of him going three for three on field goals on Friday night. Now, all three field goals were shorter field goals, so I don't think we can just say, okay, Dustin Hopkins and the field goal operation of the Washington football team have been fixed, but Hopkins was better. I mean, that's certainly better than going 0 for 2, as was the case for Hopkins in Washington's preseason opening loss at the New England Patriots on August 12th. Hopkins on Friday night, late first quarter, 34-yard field goal, late second quarter, 31-yard field goal, and a third quarter, 31-yard field goal. His misses in that preseason opening loss at the Pats were on lengthier field goal attempts. He missed a first quarter, 40-yard field goal attempt, and a third quarter, 50-yard field goal attempt. So I don't know about you, I need to see a lot more before I truly trust Dustin Hopkins on field goals. But Friday night certainly was a step in the right direction. Two offensive rookies who Ron on Saturday got asked about were Samuel Cosme and John Bates. So Cosme in this win over the Bengals at FedEx Field on Friday night was Washington's starting right tackle for a second time in as many preseason games. He is going to be Washington's starting right tackle for week one against the Los Angeles Chargers at FedEx Field. I mean, that seems about as certain as can be without it having been made official. Uh, Washington's five starting offensive linemen on Friday night, Charles Leno Jr., Eric Flowers, Chase Roulier, Brandon Sheriff, and Samuel Cosme, each played on 32% of Washington's offensive snaps. As for Bates, he actually tied with Wes Martin for the second most Washington offensive snaps in the game at 52%. Remember, Washington was down two tight ends on Friday night. Both Samus Reyes and Tamaric Hemingway did not play due to being in concussion protocol or at the very least having been in concussion protocol. Ron on Saturday on Cosme and Bates. Um, I like what we saw. I really do. I thought Sam continues to compete and, and, and practice and play hard and work hard. Um, I like John because I think John's quickly understanding his role and how he fits for this offense. And at the same time, I like how he works because he knows that the, the more he develops, the better he gets, the more he'll get an opportunity to play more and more. Um, you know, he's, he's done a nice job for us. He really has. It's, it's a lot of work to learn what we do offensively. It's a lot of work to, to take it and, and use it consistently. And you're starting to see him play more and more consistent Um practice more and more consistent. That's probably the good thing about it. Um, and, you know, thing about Sam, Sam's been a natural fit. Uh, he's gotten the opportunity. He really has taken advantage of it. Now, also regarding young Washington offensive linemen and playing time, Sadiq Charles, for a second time in as many games this preseason, led Washington in offensive snaps. Ron Rivera has had Sadiq Charles out there a lot so far this preseason. Sadiq, in the win over the Bengals at FedEx Field, played on a team-high 73% of Washington's offensive snaps. This off Sadiq in Washington's preseason opening loss at the Patriots, playing on a team-high 52% 
of Washington's offensive snaps. A lot of work for Sadiq so far, and that's good. You want to find out what you have in Sadiq Charles. Is he a tackle? Is he a guard? How good is he? What can he be? I have called him the biggest wild card for Washington's offensive line. I very much believe that. This guy's really talented, but he barely played last season due to multiple injuries, and you got to start to figure out here, okay, what do we have in Sadiq Charles? A bright spot for Washington against the Bengals at FedEx Field on Friday night was Jamin Davis, who was much better as compared to how he played in that preseason opening loss at the Pats. And the overall grades from Pro Football Focus really tell the story. Davis in the win over the Bengals had the best overall grade for Pro Football Focus of any Washington defensive player in the game at 75.3. Davis in the loss at the Pats had the second worst overall grade for PFF of any Washington defensive player in that game at 31.5. He seemed guilty of overthinking things in that game. Seemed to step slow in that game. Rod Rivera, at his day after the game Zoom press conference on Saturday on whether Jamin in the win over the Bengals played more instinctually or with still too much hesitation. You see a little bit of both. You see him doing the things that, that become very natural for him and you see him get going right away. Uh, a couple things that he tends to hesitate and, and have to read through a little bit more. Uh, you see that false step or that late step. So he's still developing, still learning. But um, compared to last week, I thought he did some things. Uh, he did a lot more better things, uh, more consistent, and um, you see the growth. That's probably the biggest thing is you see the improvement and you see him playing faster and faster. That was uh, that was one of the really big positives as far as I was concerned watching the tech. Yeah, big thing for Ron Rivera with his linebackers is for them to play fast. If Ron has concerns about Jamin playing fast, I do wonder if we might in nickel situations, at least early in the regular season, see Cole Holcomb and John Bostic as Washington's two linebackers, as opposed to Davis and Holcomb as Washington's two linebackers. Davis will be out there in base, but we on Friday night did see a good amount of Holcomb and Bostic as Washington's two linebackers in nickel. Maybe Ron and Jack Del Rio were just giving Holcomb and Bostic some work together, or maybe this is the plan for Washington when in nickel, at least early on, in the regular season. Ron on Saturday on us seeing a decent amount of Holcomb and Bostic as Washington's two linebackers in nickel against the Bengals at FedEx Field on Friday night. You did. Um, well, you saw a little bit more savvy understanding and feel for things. Um, you know, it's one of those things that they've worked together for a couple of years already, so they communicate well. And that's what you want to get uh, get those guys with when Jamin's in there, whether it's, it's with Bostic or it's with Cole. Um, I think, again, that would come through practice and working together. Yeah, I mean, the plan slash hope still very much is for Jamin Davis to ultimately be a three-down linebacker. I just wonder if we'll see that from the get-go this coming season. All right, so if you're listening to this segment right now, I'm assuming that you have at least some interest in the Nationals. Always know that I timestamp every episode of the Al Galdi podcast. That's me doing that myself, by the way. Uh, But the idea with the timestamps, of course, is you can pick and choose which segments and topics that you want to listen to. So if you're listening right now, presumably you're listening to a national segment because you're interested in the Nats. And if you're interested in the Nats, that's great. You should be. Uh, The Nats are actually a very interesting team right now from a roster standpoint, from a team building standpoint. But if you're interested in the Nats and you watched all or even most of their games on Saturday and Sunday, well, just know 
that you did not suffer alone because I watched those games too, and they were brutal. The next time that you see an article or tweet or whatever about how baseball doesn't appeal to the younger demographics, just think back to August 21st and August 22nd, 2021 to be reminded of why baseball does not appeal to the younger demographics. The games are too long. And man, was that on display with this Nationals-Milwaukee Brewers series over the weekend. So the Nats lost two of three games at the National League Central leading Brewers over the weekend. Game one of the series was a 4-1 Nats win on Friday night. That game was lengthy enough, but not supremely lengthy, three hours, nine minutes. Game two of the series, though, a 9-6 Nats loss on Saturday. That game took four hours, 18 minutes. Game three of the series, a 7-3 Nats loss on Sunday afternoon. That game took three hours, 53 minutes. Four hours, 18 minutes for the Saturday game. Three hours, 53 minutes for the Sunday game. Those times of game are inexcusable. Those times of game are so bad for the sport of baseball. Nobody in 2021 has the time or desire to watch a baseball game that lasts for four hours, 18 minutes, even three hours, 53 minutes. And keep in mind, these were nine inning games. These were not extra inning games. These were nine inning games. And yet the games took four hours, 18 minutes, three hours, 53 minutes. And don't tell me, oh, come on. This is the beauty of baseball. There is no clock. No, this is the problem with baseball. The games are too long. Point blank, period. You know, people love to talk about the ball not being in play enough these days. You know, the abundance of plate appearances that end in one of the three true outcomes, as they're known, home runs, walks, and strikeouts. But to me, those things don't matter nearly as much as just the lengths of games. The games are too long. There is too much time between pitches. You have relievers who aren't good and don't throw strikes. And because so many teams are so bullpen reliant, you see these relievers all of the time. I mean, the Nats and Brewers on Saturday combined to use 13 pitchers. The Nats and Brewers on Sunday combined to use 11 pitchers. And Nats pitchers on Sunday combined to issue 11 walks over eight innings. I mean, think about that. 11 walks over eight innings. Just brutal to watch. Anyway, what was not brutal to watch regarding the Nats over the weekend, the play of Lane Thomas. Who? What? Yes, Lane Thomas. I have for years referred to Mike Rizzo as the ninja because he is so good at trades. You know, his recent draft track record is not so good, but Mike Rizzo's track record on trades is stellar. Mike Rizzo works other general managers in ninja-like fashion. And yes, it is early. And yes, we need to see a lot more. But the John Lester for Lane Thomas trade, at least right now, looks like another ninja strike by Mike Rizzo. Yes, that is the sound of the ninja strike. So the Nats center field situation got very intriguing over the weekend. Lane Thomas and not Victor Robles was the Nats starting center fielder and number one batter in each of the final two games in the series. Also, the Nats on Sunday optioned Andrew Stevenson to AAA Rochester. Stevenson is not having a good season. He's actually having a worse offensive season than Robles is having. Stevenson has not been playing much, and so Stevenson has been optioned 
to AAA Rochester. Robles only played in one game in this series. He was an at starting center fielder and number one batter in that 4-1 win at the Brewers on Friday night. Went 0-4 in that game. Davey Martinez in his pregame press conference on Sunday said that Robles has been, quote, under the weather, end quote, for a few days. And so Lane Thomas was an at starting center fielder and number one batter in games two and three in the series. He also was an at starting left fielder and number six batter in game one of the series. He in the series was essentially Mike Trout. He went seven for 11 with a triple, two doubles, four singles, three walks, a stolen base, and an outfield assist. This guy did everything and seemingly was everywhere. Lane Thomas was acquired by the Nats on July 30th when they traded John Lester to the St. Louis Cardinals. The trade was Lester for Thomas. Mike Rizzo incredibly got the Cardinals to give up something for Lester, who at the time of the trade had an ERA of 502 and a whip of 159 over 16 starts this season. That Rizzo was able to get anything for John Lester remains a miracle. That Rizzo may have gotten back for Lester, a guy in Lane Thomas who's more than just some throwaway, is even more remarkable. Lane Thomas in the series was outstanding. Thomas in the 7-3 loss at the Brewers on Sunday afternoon, three for four with a double, two singles into walk. All three hits came on 0-2 pitches. He drew a leadoff six-pitch walk in the top of the first. He, in a Nationals one-run third, had a two-out opposite field single to right center field on an 0-2 pitch and a stolen base that led to a run-scoring throwing error by Brewers catcher Manny Pena as the throw went off Thomas's helmet. Thomas had a one-out double to left field on an 0-2 pitch in the top of the fifth. Thomas had a two-out RBI infield single on an 0-2 pitch and the Nats two-run ninth. Thomas in the 9-6 loss at the Brewers on Saturday, two for three with a double, a single, two walks, and he had a great outfield assist. Leadoff opposite field double to the right center field gap in the Nats two-run first. Leadoff six-pitch walk in the top of the third. One-out single in the Nats one-run fifth. Leadoff eight-pitch walk in the Nats two-run ninth. And a great defensive play for a double play for the first two outs in the bottom of the six as he caught a deep fly ball off the bat of Jace Peterson and then threw out Luis Arias at second base in his attempt to tag up from first base. The throw from Thomas was something else. No bounce, essentially right on target to get Arias out by a mile. And then in game one of this series, the game in which Lane Thomas was an at starting left fielder, so this was the 4-1 win at the Brewers on Friday night. Thomas was good in that game. Two for four with a two-run triple and a single. I'm telling you, it was my trout. Two out, two run, opposite field, triple to right field in the top of the fourth. And he had a one out full count single in the top of the eighth. The young building blocks. This is what you want to be paying attention to right now. If you're a Nats fan, I don't know. Is Lane Thomas a potential building block? We got to see more. I mean, the sample size is so small, but geez, he killed it over the weekend. He has been killing it for the Nats since he was brought up to the major league level by the Nationals. This is something else. And this may be the ultimate ninja strike by Mike Rizzo, John Lester for Lane Thomas. Yes, exactly. Uh, Also for the Nats in this series, in terms of the potential building blocks, the Nats' two young catchers combined to give the Nats a very good series at catcher. So Riley Adams, who the Nats got back in the Brad Hand trade with the Toronto Blue Jays, 
Uh, Adams was an at starting catcher and number seven batter in games one and three in the series. And Riley Adams continued to hit well. Uh, Adams in the 7-3 loss at the Brewers on Sunday afternoon, one for three with a double and a hit by pitch. He had a leadoff full count hit by pitch in the Nats one run third. He had a double in the Nats two run ninth despite having been down to the count at 1.12. Adams in the 4-1 win at the Brewers on Friday night, one for four with an RBI single, had a two-out RBI single in the top of the six for a 3 nothing Nats lead. Riley Adams, like with Lane Thomas, small sample size, yes, but for Riley Adams now, 38 plate appearances for the Nats at the major league level. He has an OPS of 1,027. Tress Barrera was the Nats starting catcher and number seven batter in the 9-6 loss at the Brewers on Saturday. He had a good game, offensively anyway. Two for four with two singles and a walk. And these three plate appearances were like wars that Tress Barrera waged with the Brewers pitching staff. He had a two-out single in the bottom of the fourth despite having been down to the count at 1.12. The single concluded a 12-pitch plate appearance. Barrera had a full count single in the top of the six, despite having been down to the count at 1.02. That single concluded an eight-pitch plate appearance. And Barrera had a two-out bases-loaded seven-pitch walk of Brewers closer Josh Hader, Darth Hader, one of the more intimidating pitchers in baseball in the Nationals' two-run ninth inning to cut the Nats' deficit to 9-6. Now, Barrera in this game did commit a catcher's interference error to begin a five-run Brewers eighth, but Barrera and Adams doing a really nice job offensively in this series as, again, potential building blocks for the Nats are stepping forward. Carter Keboom had himself another nice series for the Nats. He was the Nats starting third baseman in all three games in this series, and we continue to see signs of Carter Keboom blossoming as a major league third baseman, and I loved his work especially later in the game on Sunday afternoon, the 7-3 loss at the Brewers. Keyboom in this game goes one for four. The one is a home run. He smashed a leadoff homer to left center field in the Nats two-run ninth inning. The homer went a projected 414 feet per stat cast, and the homer followed Keyboom having made a really nice defensive play in the bottom of the eighth inning for the first two outs. Uh, Keyboom with the bases loaded on his knees, made a good-looking backhanded catch of a Luis Arias liner, and then made a lunging tag of third base for a double play. Also for Keyboom in this series, the 9-6 loss at the Brewers on Saturday. Went one for four in that game. Had an RBI single and a walk. One out four pitch walk in the top of the first. And a one out opposite field bases loaded RBI single to right field off Josh Hader. And that Nats two run ninth to cut the Nats deficit to 9-5. Keyboom in the 4-1 win at the Brewers on Friday night. 0 for 3, left six men on base, but did draw two walks in that game. Carter Keyboom's OPS on the season at the major league level is 780. That's over 101 plate appearances. He's hitting pretty well, okay? And we are seeing the reasons for why Mike Rizzo and others had this guy, you know, regarded as a pretty high prospect for a while. I mean, his stock has gone down over the last, say, two years. No doubt about that. But he's rebuilding himself back up here nicely. And uh, Keeboom's done a good job, at least offensively, uh, in this latest go-round at the major league level. So potential building blocks delivering to varying degrees in this series at the Milwaukee Brewers. Yes, games two and three were ultra long. They were brutal. And yes, the Nets did drop two or three in this series. But that doesn't matter. The outcomes don't matter anymore for the Nets this season. It's not about the outcomes of games. It's about who is doing what in these games. And speaking of that... Maybe the most significant pitching performance of the weekend for the Nats belonged to Patrick Corbin. He was terrific in that 4-1 win 
at the Brewers on Friday night. One run in six and the third innings. Where the heck has that been? He had seven strikeouts versus no walks. He allowed just three hits, a solo homer, a double, and a single. He threw 61 strikes versus 31 balls on 92 pitches. This was 2019 Patrick Corbin. And he did all of this throwing a ton of fastballs, which is what Davey Martinez had wanted Corbin to do. I think it's way too simplistic to say, well, that's the fix. Just throw more fastballs. Of course, it's not even as simple as that because you have to be able to properly command your fastball. Corbin did do that on Friday night. Can he do that on a consistent basis moving forward? But if he can get himself to command the fastball, there's no reason. We can't see 2019 Corbin more often than not. It has always felt during Patrick Corbin's struggles like that isn't really who he actually is. That's been the fear that this now is who Corbin is. But I always felt like, man, it's just too hard to believe that the Corbin of two years ago is now just a thing of the past, never to be heard from again. He's had a few good starts this season, but by and large, it had been an awful season. I mean, Corbin came into this game with the worst ERA in the majors among qualified pitchers at 6-0-4. Corbin, over his previous six starts, had allowed 29 earned runs in 33 and a third inning. So clearly, we need to see more. Clearly, you don't plant the flag of victory with Patrick Corbin. You can't say that the glitch has been fixed when it comes to Patrick Corbin, but Friday night was a nice step in the right direction, and we'll see if Corbin can build on this in his next start. I mean, that outing for Corbin on Friday night, that to me was his first truly good start in two months. He had had a good line in a game more recent than two months ago, a 15-5 win at the San Diego Padres on July 7th. Corbin in that game, two runs in six innings. But uh, that to me was a disappointing outing because Corbin gave up seven hits. He issued two walks into hit by pitch. He had just three strikeouts. He threw 106 pitches and he didn't eat up more than six innings in a game in which the Nats led 7-0 entering the bottom of the second, 9-0 entering the bottom of the third, and 10-0 entering the bottom of the fourth. So I know the line for Corbin in that game was good, but the overall performance was not. Corbin's last truly good outing was allowing two runs in six innings in a 5-2 win over the New York Mets at Nationals Park on June 20th. Well, this past Friday night was August 20th, and Corbin was good in that game. Very nice to see that. It's nice to be able to say nice things about Patrick Corbin for the first time in a long time. Now, what was not so nice for the Nats over the weekend was their bullpen. So game one did have a good bullpen outing. I will say that. Three Nats relievers in that 4-1 win at the Brewers on Friday night combined for two and two-thirds scoreless and hitless innings. Mason Thompson, Andres Machado, and Kyle Finnegan. But the rest of the series was a bullpen mess. The 9-6 loss at the Brewers on Saturday. Five Nats relievers combined to allow six runs, five earned and three and two-thirds innings. Among those relievers was Javi Guerra, who was a complete mess and what ended up being a five-run Brewers eighth that included Guerra giving up a one-out full-count grand slam to Kristen Yelich on a bomb to right center field for a 9-4 Brewers lead. The homer came on the ninth pitch of a plate appearance in which Guerra had Yelich down at one point, one-two, and the grand slam was indeed grand, a monster blast, that went and projected 454 feet 
for StatCast. But, you know, a lot of guys struggled in this game. Gabe Klobisitz was bad in this game for the Nationals. Jeffrey Rodriguez was bad in this game for the Nationals. The Nats on Sunday made four roster moves, including three regarding the bullpen. The Nats designated Guerra for assignment. He had not been good in his latest go-round at the Major League level for the Nats. The Nats returned from rehab assignment and reinstated Austin Voth from the COVID-19 injured list, which he had been on since July 29th, and the Nats returned from rehab assignment and reinstated Kyle McGowan from the 10-day injured list, which he had been on since July 11th due to right biceps fatigue. And so then we got what we got from the bullpen in the 7-3 loss at the Brewers on Sunday afternoon, and this was not good. Four Nats relievers combined to allow four runs, three earned in four innings, and combined to issue eight walks, a hit-by-pitch, and a wild pitch. Look, the Nats have a lot of younger guys in their bullpen right now. The Nats have a lot of unproven guys in their bullpen right now. And the results are reflective of that, okay? This is just not a very good bullpen. It's not a reliable bullpen. The bullpen had been doing okay, but these last two games have undone the okay. Uh, That's for sure. And you look at some of what went down on Sunday afternoon. Klobisitz, who, like I said, was not good in the loss on Saturday, was even worse in this game on Sunday afternoon. Two runs, one earned in the bottom of the six on, get this, a leadoff hit by pitch of Manny Pena, a one-out four-pitch walk of Colton Wong, a one-out five-pitch walk of Willie Adamas, a one-out bases-loaded Kristen Yelich groundout that led to two runs scoring thanks to a throwing error by Josh Bell, who airmailed a throw to home plate off stepping on first base for the force out. And then Klobisitz issued a two-out six-pitch walk of Avisail Garcia, despite him having been down in the count at 1.02. It was one free pass after another by O'Klobo on the mound on Sunday. And it wasn't just him. Jeffrey Rodriguez allowed two runs in the bottom of the seventh on a leadoff six-pitch walk of Luis Arias, despite him having been down in the count at 1.02. And a two-run homer by Lorenzo Cain, for a 7-1 Brewers lead. And then Austin Voth made his return, did toss a scoreless bottom of the eighth, but he loaded the bases with nobody out. And among the things he did to load the bases was issue a five-pitch walk of Brewers reliever Hobie Milner. That's the kind of bullpen performance that the Nationals got in this loss at the Brewers on Sunday afternoon. Some other observations from the Nats losing 2-3 at the Brewers over the weekend. I do have to praise Juan Soto. I mean, he is getting on base like crazy. He's not getting a lot of pitches to hit, but he continues to get on base. Juan Soto was the Nats starting right fielder and number three batter in all three games in the series. He went three for 10 with three singles and five walks. Juan Soto, as we speak on this Monday, has a major league leading on base percentage of 446, but it's not just that. So the guy with the number two on-base percentage in the majors just happens to be our old pal Bryce Harper, but his on-base percentage is 410. So it's not just that Juan Soto was number one in the majors in on-base percentage at 446. It's that Juan Soto's on-base percentage is 36 points better than the next best on-base percentage. To give you an idea of the insane rate at which Juan Soto is getting on base this season. I thought it was a mixed series for Josh Bell. He was in that starting first baseman and cleanup batter in games one and three. He did not hit for power. He did draw a bunch of walks, especially by his standards. Uh, we're not used to Josh Bell drawing walks this season. He did have a great defensive play in game one, but he also had a costly defensive play in game three. So in the 4-1 win at the Brewers on Friday night, Bell in that game, one for three with a single and two walks and a big defensive play. Great backhanded pick of a low throw 
by Kyle Finnegan for the first out in the bottom of the ninth on a Willie Adamas ground out. But then in the 7-3 loss at the Brewers on Sunday afternoon, Bell one for two with a single two walks, but also a bad throwing error. So it was good to see all these walks by Josh Bell. Four walks over his two starts in the series. Bell now has just 36 walks on the season. He has not drawn many walks on the year, but the defensive boo-boo in the game on Sunday was bad. I mentioned it earlier, that terrible throwing error and that Brewers two-run six inning. As far as the Nats' other two starting pitchers in this series, Sean Nolan was the Nats' starting pitcher in the 7-3 loss at the Brewers on Sunday afternoon. And Sean Nolan provided pretty much what you would have expected Sean Nolan to provide. Three runs in four innings. Uh, gave up six hits, a solo homer, a triple, and four singles. He issued three walks. He did have five strikeouts, but he threw just 45 strikes versus 36 balls on 81 pitches. This was Nolan's second appearance for the Nats, who selected his contract from AAA Rochester all the way back on August 11th. I mean, the Nats had made it a point not to use Sean Nolan, and you can understand why he had not made an appearance in a major league regular season game since October 2015, prior to his first appearance for the Nats. That appearance was a start in a 4-1-7 inning loss at the New York Mets in game one of a doubleheader on August 12th. Nolan in that game, four runs in three innings on eight hits, which were a homer and seven singles. Paolo Espino was the uh, national starting pitcher in the other game in this series. He started the 9-6 loss at the Brewers on Saturday. He was better than his final line indicated, but you know, still wasn't very good. Peak Paolo just seems like a thing of the past right now. Paolo on Saturday, three runs in four and a third innings. Now, he only gave up five hits, a solo homer, and four singles. He did have six strikeouts versus one walk, and he did throw 54 strikes versus 25 balls on 79 pitches. Paolo in the bottom of the fifth got charged with two runs, both of which were scored with Gabe Klobisitz pitching. But, you know, this is the state of the Nats season. They're starting the likes of Sean Nolan and Paolo Espino in a three-game series at the National League Central leading Brewers. No game for the Nats on Monday. They, on Tuesday night, begin a three-game series at the Miami Marlins. Game one, Tuesday night at 7-10. Eric Fetty will be the Nats starting pitcher. Game two, Wednesday night at 7-10. Josiah Gray will be the Nats starting pitcher. And then game three, Thursday night at 7-10. Patrick Corbin, hopefully a resurgent Patrick Corbin, will be the Nats starting pitcher. Well, history could be made for the Orioles in their next series. The O's in their next series can tie the American League record for longest losing streak in the modern era, which is since 1900. Uh, That losing streak just happens to be an Orioles losing streak. The 1988 Orioles began their season 0-21. That's not just the longest losing streak in Orioles history. That is the longest losing streak in American League history in the modern era. And the 2021 Orioles now have lost 18 consecutive games. The O's were swept by the surging National League East leading Atlanta Braves at Oriole Park at Camden Yards over the weekend. The Braves, by the way, now have won nine straight. And the O's, yes, now have lost 18 straight. 3 nothing loss on Friday night. 5-4 loss on Saturday night. And what is, amazingly, the lone one-run loss for the O's during their 18-game losing streak. And then a 3-1 loss on Sunday afternoon. The O's now are a major league worst, 38 and 85, with a major league worst run differential of minus 233. The O's mercifully do not have a game on Monday. 
But the O's on Tuesday begin a three-game series against the Los Angeles Angels at Camden Yards. If the O's get swept in that series, the O's will have a 21-game losing streak to tie their American League record for the modern era. As the song goes, Orioles magic, feel it happen. <laughs> it's, it's unbelievable. Now, you know where I stand on all of this. Pain now, pleasure later. I have had that mantra for months. If you are an Orioles fan, just keep saying to yourself, pain now, pleasure later. Honestly, as an O's fan, I don't care that the O's have lost 18 straight. Actually, this is a good thing because it's looking more and more like the O's will have the number one pick in the 2022 MLB draft. The O's were a mess, an absolute mess, when Mike Elias was hired as executive vice president and general manager in November 2018. Elias needed to blow it all up, to do a total teardown and rebuild, and that's what the O's are in the midst of. And it is painful. I get that. Like, I don't really care about the outcomes of Orioles games, but I totally understand this isn't fun if you're an Orioles fan, okay? And there is no guarantee that the teardown and rebuild will work, but this is the right path. And I get a kick out of those, especially in the media, who don't seem to understand the path that the Orioles are on. I don't know what's going on with Buster Olney, but he's got a thing right now against the Orioles. Buster Olney, right? A reporter, an ESPN MLB insider. It was a few weeks ago that Buster put out a pretty hard-hitting tweet on the O's. August 10th, Buster tweeted the following, quote, the Orioles on pace to lose 106 games this season, and in their previous two full seasons, they lost 115 and 108 games in 2018 and 2019. This is unprecedented in AL history. When the Players Union cites non-competitive behavior, the Orioles could be exhibit A. It's just wrong, end quote. Zero acknowledgement by Buster in that tweet of, hey, this is what the Chicago Cubs did. Hey, this is what the Houston Astros did. Hey, the Orioles are actually losing with a purpose here. And hey, the Orioles farm system is one of the best in baseball now. Zero acknowledgement of any of those things by Buster. Well, Buster was back at it on Sunday morning when he put out this tweet, quote, with a 311 winning percentage, the Orioles are on a path to win 50 to 51 games. They would be the first MLB team to lose at least 108 games in three straight full seasons since the expansion 1962-65 Mets, end quote. Okay, I mean, all of that is factually correct. Uh, I didn't double check it, but I'll take your word for it, Buster. But why don't you at least acknowledge, hey, there's a purpose to what's going on here? I mean, I would ask Buster only this question. Would you be happier if the O's were tracking to win, say, 70 games instead of 50? Like, would that make you feel better? Because that would be completely pointless, okay? What's the point of 70 wins? Nothing. If you're going to lose 90 games, you might as well lose 100 games, 110 games, and get better draft picks. You know, Mike Elias spoke at a press conference on Friday. He spoke for a while, touched on a number of topics. But of course, among the topics that came up was the state of the Orioles right now. They're terrible. They're putrid. They're horrendous. They're atrocious. All of that is true. But I want you to take a listen to what Elias had to say. This is a lengthy cut, but this is Elias's perspective on this losing streak, which, yes, now is at 18 games. Zooming out a bit, you know, we came in um, in the 2018 offseason, very late into the 2018 offseason, and um, at the risk of uh, repeating 
myself. I mean, it was a situ- it was a historically challenging situation where, you know, we're we're in the division that we're in, in the market that we're in. The team was um, had the worst record in the league. Um, we had, uh, I think, to the team's credit, in a lot of ways, you know, push the envelope payroll wise and window wise to extend a very impressive winning run, and um, we. You know, it broke apart. We had um, several underwater contracts, some of them historically so. And um, the farm system was toward the bottom of the league in the rankings. Um, there was no international operation that provides like a third of the players. And we were like a decade behind the industry in a lot of technological areas. And um, we knew this was going to be tough and, and take a while. Um, and now, you know, two and a half plus to three years in, um, I, I assess where we're at in this project, and we have um, a flexible landscape going forward with our major league roster and our and our major league finances. Um, we um, have a top of the league type of farm system. All of that infrastructure is updated and up and running and, and performing and allowing us to perform as we're going to need to operate as, as the type of franchise that we are and the division that we're in and the type of market that we're in going forward. And we have several players on this team right now that are looking to me like and looking to Brandon like young, young special guys that are going to be a part of a good team here. Um, so I think with all of that in mind, we are very much on track with what we're trying to do, which is bring this team back to a playoff competitive caliber, year in, year out contention um, in the manner of other franchises that I've pointed to recently. Um, it's requiring a very big transition in the way that this franchise does, did business and will do business going forward. And all that's on track. Um, and But all that said, you know, I hoped that we would be able um, to avoid kind of stretches of play like like we're in right now and, and seeing some of the things that we're seeing. I hope that we would be able to avoid that. Um, and uh, But I'd be lying if I said that I didn't know that it was a possibility, you know, at the beginning of this project or, or at the beginning of the season that, that we might find ourselves in, in these type of stretches and in this type of play. Um, and whenever it happens, it, it always causes me to, um, you know, self-reflect about things that I could be doing a little bit better, moves I should have made, or things that we can do better on a day-to-day basis. And we strive to do that and continue to do that. But, um, and it's the way I've always been, you know, ever since um, being in scouting, you know, just you, you, you self-reflect on stuff. But um, the, I think the state of play right now, that this, this losing streak, is not reflective of our large picture goals that are are very much way on track in my assessment. And so we're just going to continue to grind through it. All right. So that was Orioles Executive Vice President and General Manager Mike Elias on Friday. That was a long cut, but I wanted to play all of that for you because I thought Mike did a good job of explaining where the O's were at when he took over and where the O's are at now. You can always tweet me at Al Galdi. I got this tweet from WarnerJ33. He wrote, how long before it's time to admit the rebuild Orioles management told fans to be patient with is not working? Well, at some point, we will reach that point if, in fact, the Orioles still aren't winning. But we're not at that point yet. And to be honest with you, we're not close to being at that point. Three years from now, four years from now, if the O's have called up 
a bunch of their current top prospects and other future top prospects. And those guys aren't panning out, aren't working out, and the Orioles aren't winning at the major league level. Then you can say, you know what? This rebuild looks like a big flop right now. But we're not there yet. And if we're going to be there, we're not going to be there for a while. Understand, the rebuild is working. People are paying attention to the 18-game losing streak, and that's fine. That's the low-hanging fruit that people who aren't really that into baseball or that into the Orioles will go nuts over. But here's the real takeaway from the last few weeks if you're an Orioles fan. And I talked about this on the podcast last week. Baseball America last Monday, August 16th, ranked the Orioles as having the number two farm system in baseball. Number two. The O's over Baseball America's last three farm system rankings have gone from number 12 to number seven to number two. The rebuild is working. The O's per both Baseball America and MLB Pipeline have the number one position playing prospect in baseball and the number one pitching prospect in baseball. The O's have catcher Adley Rutschman, who is the consensus number one prospect in all of baseball. And the O's have starting pitcher Grayson Rodriguez, who is the consensus number one pitching prospect in all of baseball. The rebuild is working. Now, does it end up working to where the O's win at the major league level? We're not there yet. And there's no guarantee that that happens. I'm aware of that. But if you're following this thing as an Orioles fan, don't fall for the low-hanging fruit, okay? Don't fall for, oh, they're losing all these games in a row. The team must not be on track to be good again. No, quite the contrary. The O's have the number two farm system in baseball, and the O's currently have, at the major league level, a number of position players who look like real pieces. Cedric Mullins looks like a piece. Ryan Mountcastle looks like a piece. Austin Hayes looks like a piece. Trey Mancini, I don't think he should be here for the long haul. I think the O's should trade him. But for now, he is a piece. You can maybe flip him and get something meaningful back for him. What's concerning, okay, and what con- what worries me as an O's fan is the pitching, okay? The Orioles pitching this season has been atrocious. The Orioles' young pitchers this season have been atrocious. That's what's bothersome is that the likes of Keegan Aiken and Dean Kramer and Bruce Zimmerman and Jorge Lopez are all having wretched seasons and or lost seasons. And that's a problem. That's a big problem. You know, Grayson Rodriguez needs to work out. This other highly touted pitching prospect for the O's, D.L. Hall, he needs to work out. Although D.L. Hall is dealing with injury, uh, is dealing with a stress reaction in his left elbow. So the pitching worries me a bit. I think the O's are going to be just fine from a position player standpoint. Again, Mullins, Mountcastle, Hayes, Adley Rutschman is on the way. The O's have this shortstop slash third baseman, Gunnar Henderson, who's on the way. The O's have their first round pick from this year's draft, outfielder Colton Kowser, who eventually will be on the way. We'll see what happens with the guy who the O's took with the number two overall pick in the 2020 MLB draft, outfielder Heston Kerstad. He has been dealing with myocarditis this year, so we're not sure where his long-term future is at. Got to keep your fingers crossed for him, obviously from a health standpoint, but you know, also from a baseball standpoint. But yeah, I mean, I know the 18-game losing streak is terrible. It's embarrassing. I get all that. I do, okay? I do. But try not to focus so much on that and focus on the things that actually matter for the long haul when it comes to the Orioles. Again, pain now. 
pleasure later. I'm not kidding when I espouse that saying. Pain now, pleasure later. With the pain of the weekend, uh, a few things here to note. So John Means was not very good again in this 3-1 loss to the Braves at Camden Yards on Sunday afternoon. Three runs in six innings. I know that's technically a quality start. I hate that stat, the quality start stat. Three runs in six innings translates to a 450 ERA. That's not quality. Uh, Means did allow all of his runs in one inning, so it's really one bad inning that doomed him. Uh, he gave up all three of his runs in the top of the fourth, during which he gave up a solo homer, two doubles, and a walk. But the bottom line with Means is, over his last 11 starts, he's allowed 35 earned runs in 56 innings. He just has not been the same pitcher since he got off to that white-hot start. First eight starts of the season, Means had an ERA of 121, a whip of 071. Remember, he threw a no-hitter on Cinco de Mayo, 6-0 win at the Seattle Mariners. He then was on the 10-day injured list for about a month and a half, uh, left shoulder strain, was on the 10-day IL from June 6th to July 20th. But basically, Means' his season has been this incredible start, and then he's really fallen off. I mean, that's been his season. And his overall numbers for the year now really aren't that good. Like, this has gone from being a great season for John Means to now kind of a mediocre season for John Means. And you cannot count on him start in and start out. His ERA for the season now over 19 starts is 350. I mean, that's not terrible, especially by Orioles standards, but that's not special. And John Means was special earlier this year. The other thing that stood out from that loss to the Braves at Camden Yards on Sunday afternoon, Jorge Lopez was used as a reliever. And this apparently now is his role. I mean, who knows how long this will last for because the way things work with his Orioles pitching staff, uh, another starting pitcher will get demoted or will get hurt or something and Lopez will be called back uh, to go back to being a starter. But uh, Lopez on Sunday afternoon, a scoreless top of the ninth with two strikeouts. So this is a special circumstance and really a serious circumstance with Jorge Lopez. He on July 17th revealed that he had gone on the bereavement list due to his son having received a bone marrow transplant as his son was undergoing chemotherapy. So uh, certainly Jorge Lopez's struggles this season can be forgiven, but it was kind of alarming what happened with him this past Thursday afternoon, a 7-2 loss at the Tampa Bay Rays. He allowed four runs in two innings and then got pulled from the game. His fastball velocity in the second inning plummeted to the 80s, prompting manager Brandon Hyde to check on Lopez. Lopez said that he was fine, but he ultimately was pulled after two innings. And Hyde, during his postgame press conference, said rather cryptically that Lopez was, quote, working through some things right now, end quote. The fact that Lopez was out there pitching in relief on Sunday afternoon suggests his problems last Thursday afternoon were not physical, they were mental. And you can only wonder, right, that maybe what's going on with his son is just wearing on him to where, you know, his mind's not into this. Uh, and maybe that leads to his body not being into this or his mechanics being off, whatever. Again, it's forgivable. You know, like I'm not going to try to even think about what that must be like. Your son going through what Jorge Lopez's son uh, is going through. But that did stand out. Jorge Lopez being utilized in relief by the Orioles on Sunday afternoon. We had a Keegan Aiken start on Friday night in the 3-0 loss to the Braves at Camden Yards. He wasn't terrible, but he certainly wasn't good. Three runs in five innings, gave up two homers, three singles, three walks, and a wild pitch. Had just three strikeouts. Aiken's ERA over 18 games, including 11 starts this season, is 7.92. And then Matt Harvey's familiar pattern continued in his outing on Saturday night, the 5-4 loss to the Braves 
at Camden Yards. Four runs in five and a third innings. This was another outing in which he got off to a good start and then struggled. Harvey in this game tossed scoreless first and second innings, but then gave up two runs in the top of the third, a run in the top of the fourth, and a run in the top of the fifth. Harvey had five strikeouts, but he gave up two solo homers, a double, four singles, a walk, and a hit by pitch. This marked a fourth consecutive start in which Harvey initially was good, but then struggled. The Orioles as a team right now are struggling. There's no doubt about that. But eventually, ultimately, I do think that the Orioles will be good. But it's taking time, and it's a painful ride. There's no doubt about that. All right, that will do it for you and me. But just for now, keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. The Washington football team's mock regular season week due to begin on Monday with a practice that's due to begin shortly before noon. Ron Rivera starting the Washington football team's practices later this week as Washington tries to simulate a regular season week. Washington had been beginning its practices around 9 a.m. I will have a ton on the Washington football team for you on Tuesday's show, episode 129. Have a great rest of your Monday, and I'll talk to you on Tuesday. Hi, Ron. Um, at this point, are, are you able to say that Ryan Fitzpatrick is your starter for week one? Um, yeah, I can. Um, will you? Or no. are... <laughs> Okay. I mean, there's no, I mean, you know, we don't play for 21 days. Uh, I mean, okay. you know, so whenever, you know, it's time to say it, I'll say it. Whenever we got to put out the first um, depth chart, you know, you guys will see. Did you know a 2018 study showed half of prenatal vitamins tested had unacceptable levels of heavy metals? I'm Kat, mother of three and founder of Ritual. When I was four months pregnant, I couldn't find a prenatal I could trust. So I created my own. Ours is made traceable, third-party tested for heavy metals, and recently earned the Purity Award from the Clean Label Project. But don't just take my word for it. Get 25% off at virtual.com slash podcast.